We'll continue our study of Ephesians. I'd like to begin by reading the next section. We just came out of a long sentence of Paul, verse 3 to 14, is all one 203-word long apostolic sentence. And in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, there are eight long sentences. And we begin another one this morning. Now, we'll get through it, God willing, in two weeks, not four, as the last one, but verses 15 to 23 are one sentence. That's why if you look in the outlines of the breakup part one, part two, when we're dealing with a really clear unit, I'll put it as part one, part two, even though we're just going to get through 15 through 19b this morning. I'd like to begin by reading the entire section. It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. In one sense, all of chapter one of Ephesians is an opening greeting and then two long sentences. So we'll begin by reading Ephesians chapter one, 15 to 23. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord God, as we study Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, it is our prayer that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowing and understanding you better, that we might see what you have here in your word for us, that we might believe it, and in seeing and in believing, we might be changed. Lord God, we do not even begin to grasp the good things you've done for us. Increase our faith, increase our sight for your glory and our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps many of you have known the frustration, the challenge of trying to buy a birthday or a Christmas present for the person who has everything. I hear that in my family, that's me. I'm the hard one to buy for. My wife has repeatedly tried to buy me a new book just off the press to find that I already have it. And we can find that difficult, and it's easier to know what to do for people who have need. If someone has a broken car, if someone has financial debt, we know how to help. We know what they need. We raise fundraisers sometimes that we don't generally do fundraisers to give gifts to people who are full. And I think our prayer life oftentimes reflects that um, reality. I know mine does. One of, the, one of the things I was very convicted about in this passage is my lack of prayer for non-burning issues. As a pastor, as an elder, I'm well aware frequently of the most 
intense problems in the body, sufferings, sin issues, difficulties, illness, conflict. And those are the things naturally towards which we gravitate in prayer. And I think there's a sense in which that makes sense. Even Titus, Paul talks about devoting ourselves to urgent cases of need, and urgent cases require our attention. What can frequently happen, and I know happens in my life, is I don't spend much, if any, time in prayer for people who are doing well. Oh, maybe big blanket prayers. Oh, God, bless the saints at Martinsdale. But what I'm struck by here is Paul is going to pray, not once, but again at the end of chapter 3, an even bigger prayer, for a church that we've already seen is not having any particular doctrinal problems. There's no particular sin problems. There are letters written to such churches, 1 Corinthians. There's a man having an affair with his stepmother. There are people getting drunk at communion. There are people suing each other. There are people in factions. Corinthians has got all types of problems. And you can understand how Paul could be in prayer for them. Repeatedly, Dave, Dave can testify. There are a lot of, they got a lot of problems. Um, but as we, as we did our introduction to the letter to the Ephesians, there's no such evidence of that. The church is well-grounded. The Apostle Paul meets with the elders on his way to Jerusalem. He just gives them general warnings and admonitions, but it seems to be a healthy church. Even in the book of Revelation, by the time the Apostle John's writing, they've got a good foundation, they've got good doctrine. Their love is beginning to wane, and there's a warning towards that end. But here is a healthy church. And he's just finished telling them they have everything. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. They're a healthy church. There's no immediate crises of doctrine or conflict. And he's just told them they have every spiritual blessing. And yet we're going to read, he prays for them nonstop. How then do you pray for those with everything? those who are healthy, those who are strong. Paul's prayer ethic for the healthy and the strong is convicting and intimidating. Let me, let me read to you some of his greetings. This, this is a man of prayer, and not just prayer for the urgent cases. Romans 1.8, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 1 Corinthians 1. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus. That Paul is thankful for the Corinthian church is itself convicting. <laughs> You'd imagine if any church gave Paul the grounds to grumble and complain, but I gotta deal with the Corinth. He I just thank God for you. Philippians. One, three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Colossians 1, 3 to 5, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. First Thessalonians 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, not just some of you, all of you always, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, 3 to 4. We ought always to give thanks for you. Philemon 1. But it's just Philemon. It's with one chapter, you can say Philemon verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. 
And yet, as I confess, and the thing that was convicting to me this week is I don't model this type of prayer. Certainly not prayer for the healthy, for the strong, for the mature. And yet, clearly, there is something urgent, something imperative and important to be in prayer for. So I want to look at this prayer that we're going to look at over two weeks from two vantage points. One, our own prayer for each other. How ought we to pray for each other? How ought we to view? Paul is thankful for them. And I think we should be thankful for the body. And reversely, if you're not in a crisis right now, you still need prayer. There are still things that are urgent that you need. And so as you look at Paul's prayer for a maturing, strong, healthy church... It gives us some insight into what things we need, right? Lest we become to think that we see and we are clothed and we are rich like the Laodiceans. So that's, that's the approach. That's what the, my clumsy title is trying to get at. Praying for those with everything is to challenge us and to view what are our needs and how ought we to pray and think about others. I'm, I'm really staggered and humbled by Paul's prayer. He's just on his knees. And he is so thankful for churches that give him so much trouble, <laughs> They, no, they do. You read through the book of Acts. You read through Paul's life. At the end of his life, he's deserted by everyone except Timothy. And yet he is immensely thankful for the believers around him. So we're going to look at this in two points in our first section this morning. Paul's thanksgiving and Paul's intercession. Paul's thanksgiving and Paul's intercession. Verses 15 to 16. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. So what we see here then is two things. The cause of his prayer. And second, the pattern of his prayer. The cause of his prayer, why he prays and how he prays. The cause of his prayer. For this reason. Now what's the for this reason? It's referencing back what he's just said. We've just finished a large benediction, a blessing towards God. We just finished four weeks studying that one sentence. And the basic logic of that sentence is we ought, it is fitting for words of praise, good speech towards God to come out of our mouths because he has spoken good things to us. Now, the big contrast is when we speak good things to God, we're just reflecting. We are saying, repeating, announcing what he has done. When he speaks things, good things to us, things happen. So God speaks chosen, son, daughter, forgiven. And his speech towards us accomplishes those things. As we saw in that sentence, he predestined us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So make no mistake, he's blessing us, we're blessing him. But it, very different things are happening. Our blessings are reflective. His, his blessings are causal. And then he goes to to unpack a number of those blessings. And we saw the blessings we have in his love for us before the foundation of the world. The blessings that we have in Christ redeeming us. The blessings we have in the Holy Spirit sealing us as acting as a guarantee and a promise of our inheritance. And so when he says, for this reason, he's linking to all that. Because of the manifold blessings we have in Christ. Because in Christ, you and I have every spiritual blessing. Because every member of the Trinity is diligently at work in our salvation. Because of that, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love towards all the saints. So he's heard of, he knows, he's thinking of what God has done on their behalf, and he's thinking of their response. Because you remember, even in 
this first long sentence in verses 3 to 14, even as God the Father is the one accomplishing nearly all the action of the verbs, he's choosing, he's predestining, he's purposing, he's working, and we are almost entirely acted upon. We are chosen, we are blessed, we are given, we are redeemed, we are forgiven. There's still the three things we do. We hear, we hope, and we believe. And so Paul is thinking in mind of what he's just said and then uniting it with the fact that the Ephesian church has responded in that way. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you remembering in my prayers. So what's the reason of his prayer? Hearing of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Hearing of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And again, Paul's pattern in prayer, at least his pattern revealed in Scripture, I think differs largely from my pattern. If I'm not praying for Christians in urgent need, then what are we usually praying for? The salvation of unbelievers. And there are some examples of that in Scripture. But more often than not, what you see Paul doing is the second I heard of their faith, I, stopped, I started praying for you. Now, if you listened as I read through his greetings in the other letters, that's what you hear. Since I've heard of your faith, I have not ceased praying for you. I'm not for a moment suggesting we ought not to pray for the conversion of unbelievers. It's more the absence of this type of praying that is so common for Paul. So please don't hear me say, pray for the salvation of unbelievers less. Nope, you probably ought to pray for that more as well. But here, at least in my prayer life, is this whole Praying for the healthy, praying for the strong, praying that is sparked. See, you can almost picture Paul. Hey, Paul, there's a small church. There's a bunch of believers in Berea. Paul, I better start praying for them. That's fantastic. Hey, Paul, there's a, the church in Thessalonica is being faithful. Paul, I better start praying for them. That's what I see in Paul again and again and again. He hears of their faith in the Lord Jesus, and that is what he's praying for. He is praying for those who have faith, and he hears of their love towards all the saints. So he hears that they're people of faith, and he hears their people of faith acting it out. These are, of course, the hallmarks of Christians. We have a confession of faith vertically, and we have a life of love to the body horizontally. That those are the two pieces. They, they both need to be present. It's not just a mere intellectual assent. They believe, and then by that they're justified, and their faith is manifest, or to use a, a buzzy, buzzword, incarnated in their love for each other. In that, you get the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul hears, they believe and they love. And Paul says, when I heard that, I just, I just started praying. Okay, how much does Paul pray? What, what extent are we talking about? The pattern of his prayer. Well, he uses pretty strong language. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What we have is unceasing thanksgiving on their behalf. Paul didn't just pray for a few days and then move on to a different prayer topic. Paul has, since hearing of their love and their faith, not stopped ceaselessly thanking God for them. By the way, here we get a pattern for how to pay someone a compliment or how to thank somebody. You might struggle with this sometimes. You want to thank somebody for something they do. You don't want to give them the glory so you can struggle with it. The Apostle Paul's got a great way of doing this. He does this all the time. What Paul will do when he is grateful for somebody 
is he will thank God for them in their hearing. Let me say that again. Paul will thank God for them or for their gift or for their service and let them know about it. He'll do it in their hearing. So he'll tell them, brother, church, I thank God for you. That's a great way that you can give God the glory and thank another person. I think there's only one example in the New Testament where Paul directly thanks somebody. It's in Romans 16. Every other example I'm aware of, what Paul is doing is he's thanking God for someone in their hearing. He wants them to know about it, but he also wants God to get the glory. He views, and get the logic here, they believed, they love. Who gets the credit? Who gets the thanks? God does. Again, this is getting at their salvation and their faith is rooted in God's work. We just came out of that long sentence. One of the further confirmations of what Paul has been teaching about election, predestination, the sovereignty of God and salvation is that when people come to faith and when people love, God gets thanked, not them. And if, and if their salvation were finally dependent on them, it would make sense to say, thank you so much for choosing Christ. Thank you so much for loving the saints. He doesn't do that. He thanks God for their faith, and he thanks God for their love. Okay? So that's the cause. The pattern is unceasing thanksgiving on their behalf and constant remembrance. Constant remembrance. Remember you in my prayers. And so I just want to pause and think about the implications of this. Because Paul, as we've seen, goes to great lengths in nearly every one of his letters to do something like this. Which tells us that it's no small matter to encourage other people. Part of what Paul is doing, it's not all of what Paul is doing, he wants to encourage them. And he's not fundamentally encouraging the discouraged. They're doing well. They're healthy from all accounts that we can see. But even though they're healthy, and even though they have every spiritual blessing, and even though they have love and they have faith, Paul, at the front of his letter, wants to let them know, I am thankful to God for you. Okay, then how important is that, that we do that for each other? We're in the middle of a pastor appreciation month, and I can just tell you how blessed and encouraged I am when I receive notes of encouragement. I know Pastor Daniel is. But we ought to be doing this for each other and not just when a tragedy happens. That, that's the point. It is wonderful when we encourage each other when a tragedy happens. Keep, keep, please, keep doing that. Also consider following Paul's heart and letting people know you're thankful to God for their faith and their love. Even as they're healthy, even as they're strong, even as they're growing. This is the pattern. This is the heart of our God. Our God inspires Paul in nearly every one of his letters to communicate his thanks for them. And even when they are a pain, like the Corinthians, he starts, he's going to correct, he's going to fix their wagon, isn't he? Case by case, he's going to fix their wagon. But he starts, before he starts fixing their wagon, I'm thankful for you. I am incredibly thankful for you. I want you to know that. Now, let's deal with factions. Now, let's deal with people getting drunk at the Lord's table. So just bear that in mind. We, we ought to be a thankful people, thankful to God and thankful for each other. And not just in a crisis. Encouragement and thanksgiving isn't something only to be done in a, in a tough situation. We should be doing this for following Paul's heart and model. We should be doing this regularly. Um, I'll just pause and say, I am so thankful for the body here at this church. 
I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. Thankful to God for your faith and your faithfulness. And this is, this is Paul's thanksgiving. We move from Paul's thanksgiving then to his intercession. To his intercession, verses 17 to 19b. It's hard to draw the line because, like I said, it's all one sentence. But I'll try to draw the line in the middle of verse um, 19. Remembering in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. I'll sort of draw my line there. It's one big sentence. We keep going, but... So Paul is praying something for them. So if in the first point we learn, hey, it's important for us to be thankful of each other, and it's important for us to communicate that thankfulness, making sure the right recipient gets the glory, but following Paul's path, letting them know. Are you thankful for people in this church? Let them know. You've got good apostolic warrant for that. Let them know. Now, how ought we to pray? What are the important things? And here in our second point, we're going to try to answer that other issue. What are the pressing issues for the mature? What are the pressing issues for the healthy, for the spiritually rich, for people who have every blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? How do you pray for them? Because Paul is praying nonstop, and it's not frivolous, trivial prayer. There's something that is important enough that even though Paul's traveling and planting churches, he is making the time to pray for the Ephesians and the other churches regularly. What is so important? Or to flip it backwards, what should be the important issues on our radar that we need? This tells us how to pray for each other and what we need all at the same time. And by the way, if you're not healthy right now, if you're in a crisis, if you're in, 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 in difficulty... This is still true even more so. What, what does he pray for? Well, he prays. Here's the logic. If you look at the big picture, he's praying that God will give them something to enable something. God, he wants God to give them something so that something can happen. So first, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ might give. This is, again, remarkable. He's just told us in verse 3. That God has already blessed you and I with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So what's so urgent that Paul has to be praying night and day for them? God needs to give you something more. (laughs) This is following through with Paul's logic of God's lavish gift. If, If verses 3 to 14 are not enough of what God has given, Paul is on his knees day and night praying that God would give them more. Okay, what is it they need? It's not a new car. It's not health and wealth and prosperity. It's not what's on his list. I pray that you would get a Lexus. No, there are people today. That's what they say should be the list. I'm going to name it for you. I'm going to claim it for you. I'm going to proclaim it for you. Nope. What is it they need? Before we answer that question, notice the Trinitarian formula. The last big sentence had a Trinitarian working of God. So in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse, um, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. There's Christ, who's referred to as the beloved at the end of verse 5. And then the Holy Spirit is active in verse 13. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we saw in our last big sentence that 
the operation of our salvation began at eternity past. It looks forward to the new heavens and the new earth and the full accomplishment of our redemption. That involves all three members of the Trinity at work. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church also is Trinitarian in nature. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So there's a Trinitarian working here as well. Whatever it is the Ephesians need, whatever it is you and I need, Paul envisions it as a further working of the Trinity. Okay, so what is it we need? Wisdom and revelation in knowing him more. Wisdom and revelation in knowing him more. The more is my addition, it's the implication. They already know him. They've come to believe in him. We've already seen that. They've heard, they've hoped, they've believed. And so if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know God the Father through the work of the Son and the inward testimony of the Spirit, what you need is to know him more and understand what he has done for you more. That's why we must never be content with our knowledge of God and our knowledge of what he has done for us. This is why the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word takes such a central place in our worship service because we understand even as we know truth and to varying degrees we know truth. Some of us have been studying longer and harder. Some of us are newer believers. Wherever you're at, you've been on the postdoctoral work in seminary and, and Bible study. It doesn't matter. You need to know God more. Let me show that to you. Keep your finger here and go to Philippians chapter 3. This is not something unique for the Ephesians. And this is not something unique for their time and their day. This is the Apostle Paul's greatest need. The Apostle Paul, who I'll remind you, was caught up to heaven, saw the resurrected Lord, was taught by him over years. The Apostle Paul, who had a knowledge of the Son of God in an intimate and profound way, says this in chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he knows him, right? For the sake of... For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him. You just said you know him, Paul. Yeah, and I need to know him more. Paul, you've been caught up to heaven. The resurrected Lord Jesus has talked to you personally on more than one occasion. I know. And that's the greatest treasure I have. I count that more valuable than everything I own and every accomplishment I have. But the one thing I need, the one thing I press on is that I might know him more. That's what Paul says here. That I may know him, verse 10. The power of his resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. One of the greatest dangers to your spiritual life and growth is becoming content and complacent with your knowledge of God. The Apostle Paul strains forward, leaving everything else behind. I know him and I want to know him more. The Apostle Paul here looks at a church that is in healthy, strong shape. 
And he says, since I heard of your faith and your love for the saints, you're off to a good start, you're doing well. But what you need is to know him more. You need to understand, well, that's in large part what this letter is, don't you understand? This letter, let me tell you in more detail who God is and what he has done for you. And that's his passion for them. It's Paul's passion for himself. It's his passion for the church. It needs to be your and my passion for each other and for ourselves. Never, never grow complacent in your knowledge of God. Heaven's great joy and glory will be knowing him and continuing to know him better. Because because he is infinite, we will never run out of excellencies and things to marvel at in our great God and Savior. So Paul prays the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation in knowing him more. You need both. You need God to reveal and the wisdom to process and understand what he has revealed. And God needs to do that. We can study, and we should study, but whatever growth, we, we need to study prayerfully. Again, this instructs our, even our reading of the Bible. You can't do it on your own. I, I can translate Greek, I can diagram sentences, but if God doesn't give the wisdom and the revelation, it's going to profit nothing. And so even this is God's gift of grace. He's sovereign even over our knowing him more. You understand that God is sovereign over whether or not you get to know him more. The good news is his happy heart is that you would. And he's given us all things that we might know him more. But you're dependent on him in eternity past. You're dependent on him now. You're dependent on him even to know him a little bit better. The good news is he's happy. He he delights in revealing himself to his sons and daughters. Okay. Point B. What specifically that we would know? And here, Paul gives three things. You see them by the what's in the passage, right? So, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And just we'll step back for a moment. It's that last what, that power, that will set up the extended discussion of God raising Christ from the dead that we'll look at next week. So the last what sets up the second half of this prayer, which we'll look at next week. Um, So he wants God to give us wisdom and revelation. Another way of saying that is that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. Again, indicating a sovereign work of God, something God has to do. You'll hear me pray on Sunday mornings, open our eyes to see your glory. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm praying along with these types of pictures because God does that. Blind people don't make themselves see. And people who see bleary don't make themselves see clearly. Mother, my mom would be mad if I didn't. Okay. (sighs) Even when she's not here, she's here. (laughs) I love my mother. Um... People who are blind don't make themselves see clearly. So what then? What might we see? So we're going to look at this. Three things. One, um, having the oh, sorry, point B here. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that they might know. So it's, this is getting back to knowing. So the three things here under 2B. One, what is the hope 
of his calling? What is the hope of his calling? So he's told them and he's told us by extension that we have been called, that we have been chosen. Look back in verse 4 of chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Well, another way that Paul speaks of that activity of choosing or predestination is calling. It's the language he uses in Romans 8. I think he's talking all about the same thing. You and I have been called to Christ. And in that call is so much more than mere redemption. There's so much more offered in the gospel than just that your sins will be forgiven. We've talked about this. Even in this last sentence over the last few weeks, in that gospel call is not just the offer of the free forgiveness of sins, but the adoption of sons and daughters, the the being given of an inheritance. Elsewhere we'll read about, we will reign and rule with Christ. We've been given each other. We've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And Paul makes it clear that even for people who are healthy and even for Christians who have everything and are full, they need to understand the implications of that call more. Again, if we, we, we get caught up on election and predestination because they can be debatable and they can cause conflict. For Paul, they're sources of joy, worship, and encouragement. He's like, you've got to understand all of the implications of that call. If I can use a crude analogy, um, we will join clubs or we get gold card membership status. And, and when we do things like that, there's a benefits package that comes with it. And it might have 18 bullet points. I have a friend of mine who's able to go to certain you know, secluded lounges in the airport because of his gold card status with certain airline cards. We understand that privileges can come. And what Paul's saying is, if you understood all that came with your calling, you, you would have hope. So let's flip that around backwards. If you're discouraged at all, perhaps you need But Paul's praying for this church, a fuller, a bigger understanding of all that God has done for you. Or to put it another way, if we would grasp more fully all that is involved in our calling, we would be a hopeful people. That's much of what Paul's going to spend in chapter 2, as he's going to contrast our former way individually with our current blessings and our former way corporately as Gentiles with our new membership in the body. But he says, look, you gotta, I know you know you're called. I know you know you're his. But oh, that God would give you a better understanding of the tremendous hope that comes with that. That's what they need. That's what you and I need. Don't become complacent with your hope. Yes, 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 I know I'm going to heaven, but I sure hope I get to go to Disneyland before I die. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. And if you find, and, and, and here's the thing, if you find yourself, I, I know I should have this hope, Pastor Jeremy, I know I should, but I really am more hopeful for the, for the job advancement. I am more hopeful for the birth of the child. I am more hopeful for my upcoming marriage. Or, then pray, like Paul, that God would help you to see more fully the hope of the calling. Because Paul says he can take everything in this world in one balance of the scales, And knowing God in Christ is better. He counts this as loss. If I have to choose, this is garbage, this is everything. And so if our hearts are like, well, actually, 
There's some thing, and there's some things that I love in this world. Love my wife, love my family. It doesn't, Paul's not saying it's all bad. It's simply the lesser. Pray with Paul that God might give you eyes to see the hope of your calling. The hope of his calling. Second thing he wants God to give us insight for. What is the hope of his calling? Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And again, this is, again, dovetailing off of what he has just said. How did he end his epic sentence in verses 3 to 14? By talking about that very thing. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you've been given the Holy Spirit to give you confidence, you will receive your inheritance. That's great. Additionally, Paul says, while you wait for it, you need to have a better understanding of what is entailed in that inheritance. What other, you don't understand the riches of that inheritance. I don't understand, as I ought to. And so it's going to take divine revelation and divine wisdom by the Spirit of God so that our hearts might be enlightened, so we might see what is... What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And notice how he's stacking terms up. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the logic's pretty clear. I guarantee you, you think God's riches that he's given you are are smaller than they are. I think they're smaller than they are. And Paul is linking this as important. Why? Because by the time we turn to chapter 4, In chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul is going to build upon all that he's taught here and call upon the Ephesian church, and he's going to call upon you and I to do difficult things. He's going to call on us to abandon the works of darkness. He's going to call on us to relate rightly to each other. He's going to call on uh, children to obey their parents, slaves to obey their masters, wives to their husbands. He's going to call on us to, to pray, to speak the truth and love to each other. He's going to call on us to do a lot of things. And he's putting the fuel in the fire now that's going to keep it burning and give the power to do those things. So I think the logic is you need to understand the hope you're calling. And you need to understand the immense riches of his inheritance and grace if you're going to do and live faithfully and persevere to the end like you need to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I mean, he picks this up again over in chapter um, 2. Look in chapter 2. And and there's a sense which we can, don't have to go exhaustively here because we'll pick this back up again. Remember I told you in chapter 2, he's going to contrast first individually, then corporately, our former life and our current life and our former identity corporately and our current identity. And so in 2, 1 to 3, here's how we formerly were. You all were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But then we get one of those wonderful but gods in verse 4. Here's the hinge being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in Christ, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God has immeasurable riches of grace and he intends to show them to you and to me and it's going to take eternity for him to do that. And Paul is praying earnestly for the Ephesians that they might start to get their minds wrapped a little more around this. They might understand this a little more. The logic being, as our understanding of these things grow, we'll be more stable and we'll be more faithful in life. This is what mature people need. This is what solid believers need. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Quickly, two things here. First, we get some idea of the degree of power. And, that, and really, that's where he's going to spend the rest of the sentence on, is that degree of power. Um, look at how, in the middle of 19, according to... What that's saying is you need to grasp the greatness of his power and you can measure his power by some degree according to looking at the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. That's the rationale. So he's going to say you need to understand this power towards you because it's the same power. It's in keeping with, it's in accordance with the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him above all names. That's, That's the rationale we'll look at next week. But first he gives us a paradox. There's your blank. A paradox, degree of power. And the paradox is this. He wants us, track this back, verse 17, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge. I want you to know something. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know twice. I want you to know something. What do you want me to know, Paul? I want you to know what's immeasurable. How do you do that? And it's a way of expressing, we will never arrive at this, but he wants you to know it more. We need to know it more. It's immeasurable, oh, that you could begin to measure it. This isn't the only place he does it. Turn to chapter 3. When we get to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul will use the same use of paradox in his bigger prayer. And in fact, I think at this point we can pause and you can see the similarity of these prayers. Paul's emphasis is unchanged. The detail of how he gets there, the particulars will differ. He's got some other things he wants to bring in. But the basic idea of, I am on my knees daily for you so that you would better understand who God is and what he has done for you in Christ. That's uniform from one prayer to the other. So look at three, starting in 14 to the end of the chapter. And I'll pause when we get to the paradox there. Same notion. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. There's that same Trinitarian working. In your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may, I love this, you may have strength to comprehend. You're going to need some serious strength, power, if you're going to comprehend what he wants you to comprehend. You may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, there's us, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth 
Now, using spatial imagery, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that surpasses knowing. There's that paradox. The use of paradox is a, it's simply a rhetorical device, which is to say, I know you'll never get there. I know you'll never exhaust knowing it, but I want you to know it more. I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know the immeasurable riches that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then look at verse 20. You'd think that's a pretty tall order, Paul. That's a pretty tall order. Paul said, that ain't nothing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, like everything I've just written, God can do far more abundantly than that. That's nothing. According to the power at work, ooh, within us. Do you think we might have too small of a view of the power of God towards us? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So back to chapter one. We'll wrap this up. The degree of the power. God's power towards you. God's power available for you to be faithful, to hope, to believe, to love, to suffer, to persevere is far greater than you can think or imagine. It's the same power we'll see next week, the same degree of power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him above every power and king and demon and spiritual force and heavenly places far above them all. That power is available to us not to make you rich, not to make you healthy, but to do the things God calls on you to do with love and hope and with joy. And so Paul is saying, I, what you need is a better understanding so, of those things. And who is, these, who is this for? Sort of come full circle here. What's the object of this power? Believing ones, believers. The Greek has the idea of ongoing belief, the ones who are believing. That's why I put it that way, believing ones. What qualifies you for the hope of the calling? What qualifies you for the riches of his glorious inheritance? What qualifies you for this great power? Faith in the Son of God. So I just want to pause here. I'd be remiss if I did not call on you to believe. Yes, the Trinitarian God is at work. Yes, even the very faith which you believe is his gift. Yes, the understanding of this spiritual truth is also a gift. Yet God calls on you to believe. He calls on you to turn from whatever it is you're building your life upon. He calls on you to turn from your sin, from yourself, from whatever it is you worship to him. And you will receive his spirit, pardon, forgiveness of sins, and inheritance, adoption. And you will have this hope. You will have these riches. You will have this immeasurable greatness of power directed towards you. This is our need. If you're, if you're in Christ, if you're his son and your daughter, his daughter, you need to better understand. I need to better understand. The apostle Paul needed to better understand the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. This is how Paul sets up his letter. This is the foundation he lays for all of the calling upon, all of, the, all of the, the exhortations and imperatives to follow and pursue and obey Christ. This is the fuel to power faithfulness. And notice the goodness of God. It's all carrot. There's no stick here. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close in prayer. I think it's only fitting that we offer up praise to the living God.
Let me have a word of prayer and we'll sing. Lord God, open our eyes to behold the glory, the goodness, the greatness of the, the blessings that you have spoken to us. Help us to see, grant us the power and the wisdom and the revelation to see and understand better the hope of our calling, the, the glory of your riches, of our inheritance, and the great power that you have directed towards us who believe. Lord God, give us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.